ho, ho. Three-point range. The Christmas edition, Christmas Eve. We're coming to you from Parts Unknown. And uh, this is Mike Berardino, joined as always by the scout, Kimball Crosley, and the professor, Tim Crothers. And after some of the recent setbacks for the for this vehicle we're going to go back to the leadoff man tim's back in the leadoff spot it's just better that way yeah i mean it's true i mean you, we all know that that there are certain teams that uh you know you try to change the leadoff spot and all goes to hell so i think we've we've finally come to our senses and uh and yes the leadoff man is back in in place and and this is you know, this being our Christmas edition, first of all, Merry Christmas to you guys. I mean, it is, it's a gift to me, of course, to, to be able to just be in your presence, the two of you, uh, on, this, on this special Christmas Eve. Mm. And as, as a gift to Kimball, my gift to Kimball uh, this week was that after all of the whining and moaning and complaining about how you, Mike and I don't care enough about the NBA, I broke my, gosh, I guess it's I'm thir about a maybe a 50 eh, it's about 45 years maybe since my last NBA game <laughs> and I attended an NBA game this wow. week. Wow. Wait a second. Yes. You, you you're you, welcome. You, you're welcome. 40 what are you talking about? Didn't you didn't you profile Charles Barkley or something in the 90s? Didn't as, you? A, as a fan, as a I fan. See. Okay, thank you. As a fan. Okay. Uh, yes, I, I did. I was not working. I was sitting in the stands for the first time in about 45 years. This and, is the best Christmas gift so far this year. Uh, and it probably will continue to be throughout tomorrow, but, but, uh, yes, you're welcome. So on Tuesday night, I, uh, I went to the world's most famous arena to witness the, the pivotal tilt between the New York Knickerbockers and the NBA's worst Detroit Pistons. And I did it basically as a, as a controlled experiment because just three days before I had, I visited uh, another famous basketball venue that I rarely, I rarely see these days. Um, and another of Kimball's favorites, Cameron Indoor Stadium. Uh, on Saturday afternoon, I went to see Duke against uh, Elon. So I feel I feel like it's a fair fair experiment because in both cases we're talking sort of mid-season, not very sexy games, uh, one in college venue and one NBA venue. And so I feel like that's a pretty fair comparison. I hadn't been to either one in a, in a long period of time, so I was I'm kind of taking it in uh, in sort of a fresh manner. And uh, I've come to the conclusion that nothing has changed. There's no doubt in my mind, based on, the, on the, this experiment that I've run, that, uh, that the college atmosphere, the uh, watching a college game in, in a college uh, venue is a thousand times better than watching uh, a game in an NBA venue. Here's my, here's my basic breakdown. I mean, this is something that I'd always... I've complained about before on this podcast, and I, I, having seen it, witnessed it, my God! I mean, an NBA game is just is just a light show, a cacophony of of sounds, the organ, the blah, the the. It's just 
there's it was rare there was rarely a possession that occurred in the NBA game that there was not some sort of supporting schmaltz to try to keep us interested in what was going on. Uh, there was um, a a constant um, din uh, from the organ. Uh, it did bring me back. I will say the one thing I did like about it, I talk about balance all the time in my class with opinions. So I, I'll give my, my one opinion. It really brought me back was back to my days of being 12 and 13 at the garden and the, uh, the defensive, the defense chant where the organ comes in and goes, bum, 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 bum. I don't know whether that's done all over the place. It sort of seems magical at, at, uh, MSG. And I didn't mind that. That was the one thing I was okay with because it kind of brought me back to thinking about, um, watching games on TV where Reggie Miller was in that was in there or Michael Jordan and, and that sort of, uh, din, from the Oregon came on, and I, I was okay with that. But it's all of the other stuff, offensive. Even when when the Knicks are on offense, and the Oregon guy just can't can't keep himself <laughs> out of it. It's just <laughs> awful. So I contrast that to Cameron, where I mean, it couldn't have been a more dreadful atmosphere for Cameron, which is meaning that there was uh, they because of the we were on. It was on break. We were we were talking about no cheerleaders, no, barely any Cameron crazies, maybe just a handful of actual Cameron crazies, um, a, just a, an alumni band. Um, so just not not your full full blown Cameron by any means, but uh, but just thinking about the fact that we there was no need for us to feel like we needed to be entertained beyond the game. And again, it was not a great game. I mean. It blew out Elon right from the start, and uh, but uh, the atmosphere in Cameron, even even for it, even at its most lame, I would say, was uh, was still there was still a bit of a buzz there. There was still a bit of electricity there. I mean, obviously, when when King Shashevsky walks out onto the floor, there's a you know there's a uh, an audible hush. I guess you can say is if that's such a thing, an audible, an audible excitement to the, to the, uh, to the moment and the game itself. Um, again, just, uh, there's just the, the, the excitement around the game happening. Um, Knicks, the next game, I felt like people were more concerned about when the, when they, when their order that they had uh, phoned into the concession stand was going to turn up. Um, Whereas at Cameron, uh, you know, everybody was actually paying attention to the game. There was a, you know, there was a, there seemed to be some, some uh, excitement about, you know, about what was happening on the floor, which just didn't, didn't strike me at all uh, at MSG. So there you have it, Kimball. I've done, I've done everything I can. I really tried. I went, <laughs> went, went in there with an open mind uh, and I actually, you know, I actually went, out of my way to attend a game and and uh i've come to the conclusion that i was right all along well all right let me i have some questions first of all i'm mm -hmm. certainly not going to argue for the nba experience in attendance versus my <laughs> college experience that was never a a, a point of mine mm -hmm. um, I, I i am curious about a few things one being forced to watch the game. <laughs> yeah, it was brutal. Not much else to do. Brutal. Was was the style of play any better 
then you remembered it. Did you feel like there was, or, did, or as we talked about before, did you feel like it was just guys standing around? And well, granted, I was watching two two teams with a combined winning percentage of about three hundred, so that that might be that might be part of it. Um, but yes, there was an abysmal amount of possessions in which the ball was brought down the floor, uh, and a guy would sort of just look around briefly, spot up and hoist up a three that would front rim and was just taken down the other way. Yes, um, absolutely. None. And that's, and again, that this, this is a team coached by Tom Thibodeau. If there's any, if there's, you know, if there's anybody in the NBA coaching wise, who I would think, you know, would have some authority over a basically an incredibly young Knicks team who would actually be able to coach them up, who would, who might get a little bit of respect and might, force a team to actually run a play now and again i just didn't see it you know detroit of course was was their their coach had covid so they were being coached by an assistant coach and it was basically just a pickup game on their end but there is a um, there is a uh, kimball you're probably aware of this being a new yorker there is a uh, a, co- a court in in the west village at west fourth street um a famous basketball court there were many great players have played it's kind of the it's kind of the the downtown version of rucker park and uh i watched i watched a little pickup in there um uh the the same day the afternoon of the game i went to the garden and uh and the the um the playmaking and the organization in the game at west fourth fourth was far better than it was at msg that <laughs> night well there's no shot clock mm-hmm. you know right. that 24 second clock works against itself instead right. of speeding the game up it tends to like stifle it mm-hmm. um it, you know and so one thing's a little unfair like the the college games i go to here occasionally i attend a providence college game living in providence Rhode Island, and uh and you know i don't know if it's just a fair comparison college versus nba because they have to pump a lot of noise in that place too to make it exciting and they're not exactly having planned cheering uh for different players i i assume that the the garden goons uh, were not like the Cameron crazies and they did not um, have planned cheers for Cade Cunningham or anything like that. <laughs> I was, I was or... sitting, I did my best to sit in the nosebleed <laughs> seats. There were, there were only two rows behind me till you got to the back wall in the upper deck. I mean, I was, I was in the, I was, I did my best to find the real fans and no, I mean, uh, you know, even with, even with the ever, ever present, uh, flashing on the on the video board board begging for more noise, which uh, you, you don't see that at Cameron either. At no point at Cameron does does, does, the, does the the big board flash up noise noise noise. So no, I, I I didn't get, I really didn't get get a lot of, uh, a lot of vig a lot of, I wasn't sensing a lot of vigor from the, from even the people up in the nosebleed seats. We're you know who were supposedly the real fans, but. I didn't see anybody with a painted face. I saw nothing, nothing along those Did lines. Did you pay to go to this game? Because I would say that I, you'd have to pay me to go attend an NBA game <laughs> with all the trouble that it takes. But did you pay? I did, being the being the wonderful father of the year that I am. Yes, I I paid to to bring my two children to this game because they wanted to get the quote unquote MSG experience. They got How it. How did they like it? Um, they, they said all the right things because they're, 
because they're well-trained, but, uh, you know, I, I know, and certainly in my son's heart of hearts, he, he went to both games with me and, uh, I know that he, he, uh, <laughs> he understood the difference between the college experience and the NBA experience and agreed with, with his father as he should. Mike, when's the last time you attended an NBA game? Well, well the NBA in general, um, not sure, but I'm having. I I love this this uh, experiment because <laughs> I think back thirty years to nineteen ninety one, the ninety one ninety two season, and I had just come. I moved from Durham to Hoboken, and then my I went from covering Duke's national championship run for the Durham Herald Sun to Courtside Magazine. I was the editor, as you That's right. all know, Courtside <laughs> Magazine. And I, I went directly from confetti in Indianapolis for the Grant Hill Championship, one game there over Kansas and Roy Williams, and nine, uh, from uh, April to November. Now, Pat Riley has arrived in New York, and you, I can't imagine any period since Red Holtzman where there was more intensity and excellence and violence in in on the court violence at Madison Square Garden than that 91-92. And then, of course, the rest of the Riley run that was all too brief, but so memorable. And a couple of things I think I want to push back a little bit. I, and it was, I remember it not being the drop-off at all that, uh, that Tim's describing because there were no empty seats back then. There was such anticipation and 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 the Knicks got good in a hurry with Riley, and were even though shooting percentages on both sides were abysmal, there was there was effort, and there was defense. And yes, that that organ led defense thing. They didn't need to wait for the organ back then. They really there was a, it was a good environment. I, I would say that twenty thousand seven hundred eighty nine is the capacity of MSG now. I don't know if it's tweaked over the years. Cameron's ninety three fourteen. There's something that's it's that's a very difficult bridge to cross if you're going to match the intensity of a hot, sweaty environment um, where everybody's packed in. And again, any empty seat undercuts some of the intensity. If you can look around and see any empty seats, that's an issue. But I, I'm with Tim on the effort these days in the NBA. Well, also, we've all done this experiment. We've all done this experiment. I think. I don't know whether. I, well, I Smith Center. You guys I was about... going to get to the Smith Center, yeah, I mean, which is go... twenty-one thousand seven fifty. So, right. under no circumstances, no matter whether it is Carolina and Duke, and it feels, and everybody's giving their best, even as fans at the Smith Center, even on those games, one versus two, whatever, the mere capacity of the place, that all the room for the cheering to go up into the rafters, into the jerseys, and dis and dissipate, makes it really hard. To match the low ceiling immediacy, you feel you can hear when you when you you know you just hear and experience and feel so much more of the intensity of Cameron. And I've never been to, to the Palestra; that's still on my list, and I've got to get there because people talk. If you guys have probably been to the Palestra, that might be the only rival for Cameron in terms of. I mean, I've never been to. Well, I have been in Allen Fieldhouse, but not for a game. But that's a much bigger arena 
Mm -hmm. uh, but the what Cameron has is so special. But I really do think good on Duke all those years. Yeah, they put in the special thumb pad for K, as we've talked about, and they have that the tower for the basketball office and all that. But they never messed with the capacity. They never like went to fifteen thousand seats or something, ripped the roof off and expanded it. And that was mm -hmm. really smart. That was really smart because it's the it's the band box along with all the excellence that makes it what it is. But um, there, there was a time, and Kimball can remember the time in the, right, the early 70s. You guys can both remember the early, the, that was as intense as, as an NBA environment could get. So we'll see. Tom Thibodeau is a fine coach, so I agree. I had him in Minnesota a little bit. I was around that a little bit. And he, if anybody can, Tim's right, if anybody can extract effort and, and defense uh, from an NBA, modern NBA roster, it's that guy. But um, he'll also run him into the ground with, with three-hour practices. I'll ba I will back up your point in the sense that we have all, we have all I think, witnessed a Duke-UNC game at Carmichael, uh, which obviously is much more yes. of, a, of, a, of a fair comparison size-wise to, to Cameron. And, and I would agree that, uh, that a Duke Carolina game in Carmichael has a has a certain had a certain level of intensity that the Smith Center has never been able to reach. However, I would say that the that having watched a lot of game a lot of Duke Carolina games in the Smith Center, um, it's it isn't that it isn't as far away from from the intensity of a Cameron Indoor Stadium crowd as most people would imagine. It's actually pretty darn good. Uh, I I am. The first to say that there's a that the wine and cheese element of Smith of the Smith Center is is a fair a fair criticism for almost any other game, but there's something about that one game every year uh, that um, that that ratchets ratchets things up quite a bit to the point where uh, you know the, the the level of intensity in there for for a Duke Carolina game is massive. I'm already anticipating that happening for, you know, Kay's last game, obviously at, at, at the Smith Center is going to be amazing. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, the Smith Center for Duke Carolina um, is, it's, it's a different sport than, than what I watched in MSG the other night, as far as just a fun atmosphere and a fun game to watch. All right, let's, let's go to point number two then. And uh, Kimball, what do you have? Well, let me just say it is Christmas, and guys, I have a, a crack research team of my own, and they did some research on Christmas gifts, and they found that 45% of all Christmas gifts fail. They don't work. They're not, they don't go over well. They are failures. Um, but Return? But Return? no, no, just, just like they, they're not good. They're, they're just for one reason or another. There's different ways they can fail, but some an injury. <laughs> but they're not they're not good now uh does this mean guys we should wait cancel? can you cite a source on this yeah What's... yeah i can yeah what what uh 58 years of giving and receiving uh, <laughs> so anyway <laughs> so boys oh, yours mean... your gifts oh my god no no receiving way higher too. Than that. no no receiving. that surprises <laughs> me 55 45 is way too narrow it was just it was just the lead let's not um, do you guys do you guys think that means we should stop having christmas we should stop giving gifts because 45 percent fail no of course not i think we should stop citing bogus stats no like, where of course are yours not come from? Look it up. All right. Of course not. But this is what's happening now in the NFL. The analytics 
war that existed in baseball for years and still goes on to a great degree has really come full force now in the NFL the last few weeks. And it's just been amazing. Uh, and, and we have a lot of guys pushing back because a lot of these coaches now are realizing the math of the NFL game. And it goes back to our old friend, Pete Palmer. Pete Palmer was a legendary baseball analytics guy. He wrote The Hidden Game of Baseball, which, which predated Bill James, I believe, and was really a, a classic for anyone that wants to study the analytics of baseball. And um, he also wrote The Hidden Game of Football. And way back in reading that book, I guess in the, probably the 80s, I guess, I realized yet that in there was about fourth down and about how teams should go for it on fourth down way more often than they do. But even today, we have all this pushback, and now finally coaches years later are getting on board, and there's been a lot going on with this. Uh, we had the San Diego Chargers. A lot of people thought they lost the game because their coach went for it too many times on fourth down. And we had my old boy in Baltimore, John Harbaugh. He lost two games, not on fourth down, but going for two-point conversions when he sort of cited the math and, and basically said, like, look, it's the better percentage play than going to overtime. A last second two where you could win the game as opposed to tie it and send it overtime, you're more likely to win. And he, he, he said some other things about that too and about why he did it. And we've had all the, the pundits pushing back. And of course, it's all these people that played football now, if they played football, made a lot of money, and they were any good at math, then they probably wouldn't be on TV anymore. They would have saved the money <laughs> and saved themselves a lot of trouble. But they're pushing back, and it's it's really been kind of fun and ugly at the same time. Um, and then we had some funny moments because uh, the Bill Parcells and the Belichick uh, tree were were they were some of the first to really realize this. They were pretty aggressive going for it on fourth down in the old days. But now people are like, well, Belichick's the kind of guy that he won't go for it on fourth down like these other crazies. He's smart and he won't do that. Well, that's true and not true. I mean, Belichick had a classic fourth down tie against the Indianapolis Colts and Peyton Manning several years ago. I think on his it was own like, 29. Right, exactly, late in the game. But just the other night, when, when all this stuff was like really bubbling over, he kicked a field goal instead of going for a touchdown. And a lot of people thought that's, what hurt him in that game. Um, and I just want to say, it's it's not computers deciding this, okay? Computers don't decide anything. It's the data we put into a computer and we study <laughs> what we want and results come out and we we look at them and, we, and it's all about what we put in and what we don't. Uh, one key factor in all this that, that I just want to cite that people don't realize because they love to point out when you go for it and it doesn't work, but of course, all the times you go for it in work, they, they don't think, well, that touchdown never would have happened if they didn't go for it there in a field goal. And we all realize seven is a lot more than three. But the biggest stat that happens, the biggest uh, uh, number that really needs to be uh, looked at is that when you fail inside the other team's five-yard line, when you go for it within the five, you even if you fail, you're more likely to be the team that scores next than the other team. So even when you fail and don't get anything, you're still more likely to score. Um, but let me just conclude by saying this, because look, just like in baseball, where we realized a long ago how that the bunt was not a great percentage play, 
over the long haul and things like that. That's all based on uh, all things being equal. You know, that's based on on all the numbers and, 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 and looking at all the data from all the situations. I am all for a coach saying, look, as Harbaugh did when he said why he went for it, he said, look, my secondary is depleted. I didn't even like our chances in overtime. I thought our best chance was to win the game there. And if a coach wants to tell me, like, I threw out the numbers because I had a 125 hitter up there, you know, or a 078 hitter up there, and the bunt is a better percentage play with him than it is with a, your typical hitter over a typical situation, I'm all for that. Just like every dad knows, okay, we should still have Christmas, but children should not be allowed to give their parents presents because it's a double negative. Because if they spend a lot of money and get us something nice, they've spent a lot of our money to get us something we probably didn't need. And more likely they're going to buy us something we don't want. And we're going to like, oh, I can't believe you spent my money on that. So better, they draw a little picture. They do something sweet from their heart. And we say, thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Lulu. No need to spend my money. What do you guys think? I think your kids should get jobs. <laughs> they're close. They're close to that. <laughs> Put them to work for God's sakes. They did my research. I, they did my. They were part of my research team, just like you. You use your kids for research and probably don't even pay them. No, I definitely don't pay them. Uh, I guess. I guess. Well, first of all, it brings me this whole the whole John Harbaugh thing brings me back to this to the to the conversation of previous podcasts. Yes. My my personality test: the two. Are you a two point guy or a one point guy? And it it it. I continue to be fascinated by that because I was watching the end of that Ravens game and thinking, okay, here we are again. And I, I don't think he, he necessarily had the same issues that he had the previous time because I don't know whether his sec secondary was, was made up of a couple guys out of the stands like it was the first time. But I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting situation with analytics because, <laughs> because yes, you know in your heart of hearts that this that analytically this is the right thing to do but how many times more would john harborough have to go for two and fail before he started to think <laughs> my god can i do this again can i lose my seventh game in a row going for two when it doesn't work uh i mean i'm with you 100 percent. there's nothing drives me crazier than than announcers who try to who try to just you know who try to diss analytics because because something didn't happen the way it was that the way analytics was, would tell us it would happen uh and then also the the second guessers and the pundits on all these ridiculous espn shows where after it's happened they they all come down on john harboy and say oh well you you can't go for doing that situation obviously it's a it's a stupid idea um yeah i think i think we have to yeah i think we have to put ourselves in a position where if we're if if we're going to trust analytics we trust them to to the nth degree and and i i just think it is a funny it is a funny notion with harbaugh now because the next time he does it <laughs> if it fails it's they're just going to come down on even come down on him even more and all he can really say and rightly so is that i'm playing the percentages i mean wouldn't we all wouldn't we all Talk about 45-55. Wouldn't we all take 55 if we have that chance every time? And I just, I, I, you know, at some point, at some point, people are going to start quoting the definition definition of insanity for John Harbaugh if he keeps doing this. 
But the truth is, he's right. He should continue to do this every single time until the analytics analytics say that he shouldn't. What do you think, Mike? Well, I, I, I find it strange that analytics has become somehow a dirty word in the and for many in a sports fandom, especially of a certain uh, demographic, elderly folks, so certainly the, and anybody who thinks Skip Bayless has something to offer, <laughs> an, analytics, you know, and they're just angry, they get angry about it. Like Kimball said, the computers to running everything. And I would say without having watched those, uh, I just have a vague understanding of what John Harbaugh did. John Harbaugh is an excellent coach. That's been proven, a championship coach. He's been there for a decade and a plus um, and also, as Kimball said, these analytics are based generally on all things being equal. When you have Lamar Jackson, all things are not equal. And you're talking about just a few yard gain needed. And you're talking about the slipperiest, uh, most intuitive, uh, you know, one of the five MVP quarterbacks on the planet and in recent memory. Well, that tilts the analytics. And so he is trusting his gut, not just the computers or what his analytics department tells him. And he is factoring in, as you said, that time when he didn't want to go to overtime because of his because of his uh, defensive uh, backfield being dinged. So um, I just think it, uh, the larger point, my one takeaway since it came up a couple of times, is, is the thing that muddies the waters on this and really uh, confuses everyone and, and just gets in the way. And so that's why I don't watch it, is those debate shows, those ESPN shows where they tell them, the, the, the washed up player. Well, this is this is your point. This I know this. That all those, if, whether it's four people or two people or whatever, they want conflict. And there's nothing better out there to sustain the viewership and to keep somebody from from hitting uh, the, the remote. Uh, then, then two people arguing, one against computers and one for computers, and that's you know just a substitute for <laughs> libtards. So, where are you, what are you going to do? That's what they want. That's what they want. They're constantly pitting us against each other when really we're all on the same side. We all want, we all want, uh, hopefully, reason to prevail. And I would say there's no better way for reason to prevail in a sports context than to have a ton of of uh, data points and to analyze them and remove the emotion and come to some overarching plan with room for instinct. And that's what John Harbaugh does. So I've, I have no problem with it, but that's a, that's a very pertinent uh, point and one that's it's not going away. It's just gonna get worse. They want, it's because of the debate shows too. They, they want us to be angry. I'm not gonna go for it. I'm not, I think it makes perfect. It's the same kind of thing with the way um, historically, I, I thought the, uh, way of selecting uh, college football's BCS championship matchup, which was purely computers, was far better than what we have now, which is which is a thirteen person committee sitting around a room watching TV and what, what are they doing? What are they even doing? If they do get to the proper four, it's by accident. It's not because the human element is still in it. I liked it when it was all feed everything into the computer. And generally the BCS matchup was a very good matchup. And, um, and so we've had a series of blowouts uh, generally involving Notre Dame when there's uh, this, whole, they did get into the one blowout BCS wise, but yeah, I mean, if you, if you really think 13 people sitting around deciding whether it's who's the four best college football teams or whether to go for two or not, is a good idea then you're just, I just can't agree with that. 
So we're we're uh, doing this. I think we all agree that the world should be run by robots, right? I think, <laughs> and then were there it, drones? It, it would be a happy place. The drone exactly. would deliver the play call. Yes. Right. Yeah. I have to go Christmas shopping. Can I go now? Are we done? No. Oh, okay. All right. Go ahead. Yeah, it it won't be much longer. Okay. Okay. <laughs>
whatever uh, how I believe that would maybe be uh, whatever whatever holiday Coach Farquhar is, is celebrating. Um, uh oh, oops, it was great. No, I mean, I would probably it's probably you know I'm not positive on that, but he's teaching at a Catholic school. And uh, Coach Bill Reardon also excellent at soccer. And Ding. these people for why you know they they put their uh, they put their careers out there for us, spent their time educating us or or dribbling soccer balls around to amuse themselves, and and so they were our version and Sacred Heart of Ms. Fitz. We never got a hot chocolate party out of that, but um, but I I just give them a little tip of the cap today and, and I, you guys had a little notice to think about anybody with superpowers from the teaching world and who do you who do you have and go ahead Kimball oh well I've got an interesting one um I my my gym teacher uh in grade school she was just a pretty normal gym teacher but her boyfriend was the human fly was it George Willig, the man that climbed the World Trade Towers with like along the, the, the rails that you used to wash windows back in probably, I guess, well, had to be the 70s, right? Uh, I don't know if people remember that, but this guy just decided I'm going to climb the World Trade Tower. And um, the next day it was in the paper and then it was like, oh, that was my boyfriend. We found out in gym class. Um, so that's quite the superpower, including the superhuman super. Uh, power name the human fly so take that mike that's pretty good that's pretty but did you ever meet not inspire me to climb buildings <laughs> <laughs> figuratively and and then the professor must have someone like that i got nothing i got nothing i i i had a i've had a collection of incredibly unathletic um but thoroughly inspiring uh teachers over the years uh none of whom I can imagine even making a layup, much less a 60-foot <laughs> shot. So I'll give you something. You you are friends with Anson Dorrance, and yes. you, you play roller hockey with Anson Dorrance. And I forget if I've, I think I've asked you this before, but Anson Dorrance was a pretty accomplished athlete in, in other ways as well. And now you're talking about like a, a top-level coach. Then you're competing against him like in a pickup game. Talk to me about his his athleticism and the wow factor <laughs> well that's that's a that's obviously not a, a teacher but yes a coach in this case yeah he uh he is no absolutely no less demanding on the rock, roller hockey court really? than he is uh than he is as a, a soccer coach yes he is coaching coaching up his team um and I've had many people, in fact, I, I think I wrote this in the book. Somebody was talking, somebody, there's a quote in the book from one of our players about how he felt like uh, even playing roller hockey with Anson, he was like a, he was, he felt like he was a player being harassed just the way uh, Anson likes to, likes to do the sarcasm thing. Uh, he's a big time sarcasm guy and, uh, and he is very sarcastic and, Basically, just just uh, just sarcasms you into a, being a better player, um, and wanting to, and actually caring whether or not you win a ridiculous uh, pickup roller hockey game. So, um, yeah, I, I a coach is a coach, and he is certainly fits in that category. Where um, if you're on his team, you're you're playing a little bit harder because you know that <laughs> that you're going to take. 
uh, you're going to take some crap from him if you don't, if you're not, if you're not at the top of your game. And um, so it's fun. That that actually is is what makes it more fun. It's kind of like uh, playing tennis with either one, one of you guys. You know, I just I I'm giving it a little more effort because I care, <laughs> and that's why I win all the time. Hmm. Yeah. All right. <laughs> We're going to leave it right there, as they say. And, uh, but uh, thanks for listening to a Christmas edition of Three Point Range. Um, we'll see you uh, perhaps one more time in this calendar year. And until then, hot chocolate for everyone. See you next time.